Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, November 29th. We are officially ready to shift gears into off-season mode here at Cracked Rackets. Now, what does that mean for all of you listeners? Well, you can continue to expect podcasts Monday through Friday here on this channel. Of course, we're also going to up the ante on our other podcast feeds as well. You can expect a wave of Great Shot podcasts content heading your way. Hopefully a plethora of cracked interviews as well as some of our favorite players have a bit more free time here in the offseason. Hopefully they'll be willing to speak with us, reflect on their 2022's preview, what they hope to accomplish moving forward. But perhaps more important than anything else, what we hope to do over the course of the next month is help all of you tennis fans reflect on what was another jam-packed action-filled year in the tennis world, of course. We'll also be previewing things for the 2023 season. Folks, before we know it, it'll be late December, and we'll have exhibition events with some of the best players in the world competing in them, of course. Then the calendar will turn to January. All of us will focus on the action in Australia as the ATP WTA Tours get underway, of course, for our Cracked Rackets. College tennis fans, we are all well aware the 2023 dual match season right around the corner. And starting next week, we're going to unveil our top 10 Division I men's and women's teams heading into the year. All of those podcasts going to be housed on our Great Shot podcast feed. It's going to be an exciting month. Yes, things, I suppose, slowed down a bit in the professional tennis world, although it's worth noting we have a handful of challengers happening this week, a wave of ITF events as well. But of course, given we do have some time over the next month, again, we want to reflect on on everything that's happened. Get back to our roots, I suppose, here at Cracked Rackets. Talk about some of our favorite topics. A little tease for what we've got in store for all of you listeners this week here on this feed over the course of the next two days. I'll be joined by my two favorite Davids, David Gertler, David Kane, going to join me to recap the 2022 American tennis season. We'll name our top 10 men's and women's seasons, respectively, on a couple of shows. We'll talk about the players who exceeded expectations Expectations, maybe the players who fell a bit short of what we hope to see them accomplish. It's going to be two extraordinary podcasts that I know all of you listeners will enjoy. And then on Friday, I'll be joined by my dear friend, Crack Rackets contributor Damian Coos, to do an ATP Challenger Tour award show, reflect on everything that happened at the Challenger level here over the course of the past season. Of course, again, coming up over the next month, I've teased some of them here on this podcast feed, 
but we'll look big picture, do our updated tiers for the ATP WTA tours, who are the players we think are guaranteed to win slams during the course of this decade. How does that hierarchy look or what does that hierarchy look like heading into the next eight years after a season where, you know, I spoke about it all year long, the generational shift we saw occur. Well, as of November 30th or November 29th, I suppose, 20. 22. What does that hierarchy look like? What can we expect moving into 2023? How do we see it all unfold? I say we because, of course, I'm going to have a plethora of fantastic guests. I mentioned the Davids. I'm sure Gil Gross will be joining us at some point. Ben Rothenberg, Nick McCarvel, all of our cast of characters, all of our favorites. Hopefully, we'll have some free time to join us over the course of the next month as we look not only at the big picture storylines like the tears, etc., but, you know, we can also dive into the nitty gritty. Who are are the players we think 2023 may just be a make or break season for? Who are the players that have maybe stagnated in their development? Who are the players who are now beginning to enter their prime and maybe we should expect a leap from? Who are the, I say Aslan Karatsev figuratively, but those may be players who are playing some of their best tennis later in their career and maybe they're ceiling now a little bit higher than we expected when they were 23, 24 years old. Again, there are so many different topics for us to dive into. Yes, of course, we'll have the Demon Hour specific pod, the Shapovalov specific pod that I've alluded to so frequently over the course of the past month, but we've got a really exciting schedule of content, I suppose is how I will frame it for all of you listeners coming up over the course of the next month. So while things may be slowing down on the court, we hope all of you continue to tune in as things certainly will not be slowing down from a content standpoint here at Cracked Rackets, of course. Speaking of which, with all of that in mind, what do I have planned for all of you listeners today? Well, I'm not going to lie. I wish I had done a little bit more preparation. I got caught up in all of the, I want to say, holiday festivities over the course of the past weekend. But in truth, we were hosting the USTA Boys 12s Level 1, as I alluded to yesterday. And hosting an event like that is all-consuming. So I didn't have quite as much time to really flush everything out. I mean, I still spent plenty of time on this list, but I think I've un- I believe I have. There it is. That's the English. I believe I have undiagnosed OCD. And so from time to time, you know, I like to obsess over these lists, get them exactly right, spend maybe a full day brainstorming them. So I feel best prepared to speak on all of them. That said, one of the first things I wanted to do here to set the tone, I suppose, for this offseason is reflect on some of the matches that mattered most from the 2022 season. That's the exercise I have planned here on today's show. And what do I mean by matches that matter most? Well, I mean it from a couple of aspects. Part A, and this is fan specific. I mentioned things slowing down in the tennis world. What are the matches you should watch during the month of December? Obviously, you'll go to the hits. For me, you know, what's my comfort food watch? I think longtime listeners already know what I'm going to say. But of course, that comfort food watch for me is that 2012 Australian Open semifinal Djokovic-Murray five sets. I think it's the most physical match. It's the highest degree of physicality I've ever seen. I think it's the best tennis match I've ever seen as well. You all have your opinions on what that match is. We all have our comfort food watch 
as tennis fans. But again, part A, what I mean, the matches that mattered most. If you're looking back at the 2022 season and looking back at matches, what should I put in my rotation of highlights I watch when I'm binge watching tennis casually or to cheer myself up? Well, I think all of the matches I have on my list here uh, today qualify under that category of, you know what? Either the level of play was high enough, the level of drama was high enough, or there's some sort of outlying factor that makes this match compelling enough to watch back as a fan. I also, again, part B, and I think this is the obvious part of matches that mattered most, how do they affect the hierarchy moving forward? Was it a significant data point for all of us as tennis fans? You know, something we will remember it for, obviously, degrees of drama. So, I excluded Kyrgios Tsitsipas from this list because I think that rivalry does matter. I think the drama, I mean, again, I have not been, I was not texted on any day of the tennis calendar more this season than during that Kyrgios Tsitsipas Wimbledon matchup because it was perfectly timed on what was it, a Saturday or a, I think it was a Saturday was the, the weekend of the match. And so, you know, it was on ESPN. It was the middle of the summer. No football, no basketball, everyone's watching. The level of intrigue made it that compelling. I think that was an in-the-moment stellar match, but when I look back at the 2022 season, yeah, I'll remember the drama from that match, the rivalry that's uh, that's built, but I think there were more significant matches, and so I excluded that match. I'm sure there are WTA equivalents where things got spicy on court that I may have, I don't want to say blank, I just may not be remembering. This is where I get back to the, I wish I did 17 days of research, but you know, I'm not going to throw this pot on December 17th. I think we'll be doing better than by then. This will be the opening podcast here of our off-season content, I suppose, although last week's award shows kind of count as well. And by the way, if you missed them, Great Shot Podcast, myself, David Kane, Gil Gross, ATP Award Show, of course, here on the Mini Break Podcast feed. It was myself, Nick McCarville. You can find that episode just by scrolling down wherever you listen to your podcast. But with that said, again, I've got 10 matches on my list, 2022 matches that mattered and that you should perhaps rewatch throughout the month of December. Of course, the reason we're able to have all this fun here on the mini break, I can do, I suppose, a random podcast topic here on Tuesday, November 29th is because of the support we get from all of you listeners. And of course, because of the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point, all the equipment, all the best prices, tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you there. You'll also get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get into it. The 2022 matches that mattered. And I do want to clarify because I'm sure some of our listeners will say you had this match before this match. You're going to rank this there. I want to be perfectly clear. There is no definitive order in the 10 matches I have listed here that I want to speak somewhat about. You know, again, this isn't going to be a a six-hour podcast. I, I actually think this mini break may be on the mini side. We may be under 30 minutes. But, you know, the most significant matches that pop into your mind when you look back at the 2022 season. And, of course, right away, I cheated. And, by the way, 
it's just me on today's show. Who am I cheating for? I'm not exactly sure. But I think all of us, when we look back at 2022, I have two players tied for the first slot I wanted to mention. And that, of course, is Serena's entire run at the U.S. Open. And then, of course, Federer's final match with Rafa at the Laver Cup. And again, in their careers... Serena's level at the 2022 U.S. Open, the actual quality of tennis we saw unfold on the court, nowhere near her top 10 best matches played in Serena's career. Similarly, as fun as it always is to watch Roger Rafa compete together in this Labor Cup environment from a quality of play, as fun as Sock and Tiafo made it, not even close to a top 10 match in terms of quality in Roger Federer's career, but two of the icons Not two of the icons, maybe the two icons of our sport, certainly of the 21st century. Roger Federer, who was the greatest of all time unequivocally until these two, not just generational, but maybe historical talents in Novak Djokovic and Rafa Nadal, who saw the ceiling he set and had a a clear definitive marker to continue to chase. You know, Roger was the guy in the 2000s and, you know, has managed to sustain a career that's lasted and extended into three different decades. And we're not getting into the greatest of all time argument right now, but I'm saying there was a moment where Roger was unequivocally the greatest of all time. And to have that player retire, to have Serena Williams, who might not just be the greatest tennis player of all time, Maybe not just the greatest women's tennis player of all time either, but maybe the greatest female athlete we have ever seen grace this planet. And both of them announced ceremonial retirements to allow fans to afford them the proper send-offs that they deserved. And look, again, at least the Serena U.S. Open round, even if it would run, excuse me, even if it wasn't the highest quality tennis, the quality of the drama, you know, again, for her to get through the Kavinic match in straight sets and sort of set the table of, okay, now we get the real fun with Annette Contevain. She sneaks that first set out 7-6, and then you just see the crowd and Serena engage in a way in the third set that was just magical and for Serena to take that third set 6-2 and for her to extend the match to a third set. You felt like she was about to summon the magic once more against Tamjanovic in the third round. I mean, that was just an unequivocally delightful send-off. Even if it might not actually turn out to be her send-off, still it was a moment we all deserved as tennis fans to, you know, again, send Serena, I don't want to say send Serena into retirement, but afford her the applause that she so clearly and, I mean, just so clearly deserves. And so I think that has to be on there. Look, Roger doubles to see it end in that fashion. You would have loved to see it at a Wimbledon or perhaps a more or in an environment with more pageantry than just a one-off Laver Cup doubles. But then you had the post-match ceremony and the players putting him on the shoulders and the tears and the speeches and Rafa crying and just – I think the, these two matches, which again I'm cheating by putting together and it's four total matches I suppose I'm referring to here – I think that's where you have to start, right? Those are the matches when you look back at the replay. You're like, what was Roger's final match? Or maybe the Serena Conteve match is the one you pick most because in the magic of that moment, she gets over the finish line. But the two big retirements, and there are a wave of other retirements as well, but the two big ones have to be on the list. From a tennis standpoint, and those are, I, I guess that's where my next nine are more centric as opposed to the grandeur of the moment. From a tennis standpoint, 
I think all of you listeners can anticipate the match I have to turn to first, right? It was a match where, of course, Great Shot Podcast co-founder, my doubles partner, partner in crime, Max LeBauer Rothman, texts me at from at you know 1:45 in the morning. He's sitting like seventh row. He's one of the people who remains in the crowd because he understands the significance of the moment. If that. Time didn't give things away. Of course, I'm referring to the Alcaraz Center matchup in the U.S. Open quarterfinals. Alcaraz, a 6-3-6-7-6-7-7-5-6-3 victory over Sinner. I mean, Sinner had match point, and he's up 5-4, I believe, serving for the set. You know, I think he landed a first serve in that moment. Alcaraz lands the return fairly deep, pretty neutral. Sinner kind of undercooks that first forehand. And then all of a sudden, Alcaraz is in control of the point. All of a sudden, Alcaraz gets it back to deuce. All of a sudden, Alcaraz gets the break. All of a sudden, it's a brand new match. And of course, why is this so significant? Well, Alcaraz and Sinner are the two guys of that next-gen 2.0 Era And you look for Carlos Alcaraz, who's the player he's played most in his career at the ATP level? It's Yannick Sinner. They've now played five total times. And, you know, Alcaraz won the first two, Vienna Challenger, Paris Masters event. Then this year, the flip, uh, the script flipped. Sinner gets him in that Wimbledon round of 16, a four-set win in a match where neither guy, you know, has played more than 20 matches of grass court tennis in their career. It was very much a pecking order. Hey, let's sort of feel things out on this grass court. Let's sort of feel each other out playing our first match at a slam against one another. Of course, Sinner not only wins that match, but then... The dominant sets two and three in a three-set win in the Umag final later in July. And then, of course, you know, so going into that, it's Alcaraz, Sinner, quarterfinal. And, of course, going into that quarterfinal, Daniil Medvedev, not alive in the draw. Rafael Nadal, not uh, not alive in the draw. I believe Tiafo had already beaten him. Yeah, he had a slam finalist in Casper Ruud, still alive. But it felt like the winner of that quarterfinal, Alcaraz-Sinner, was now your favorite heading into the 2022 U.S. Uh, heading into the U.S. Open semifinals. And go watch the match. The quality of this one was spectacular. And yes, there were moments where Alcaraz was spraying, but the sheer firepower, these two under-22 talents possessed to watch Sinner just how easy it is for him to manufacture depth, pace, and aggression, to see him relentlessly try to push forward to just not allow Alcaraz to be dictating from any portion of the court. That was spectacular. Of course, you had Alcaraz diving and jumping and performing all sorts of remarkable feats of athleticism. You have the second and third set tie breaks equal in their drama. Alcaraz, you know, running out to leads, losing it, Sinner doing the same. This match had everything. The quality of play was spectacular. I have already watched the highlights five times. This one's just on the list of matches I think you have to rewatch to get the big picture of how the year unfolded because I've said it before. I'll say it again. Sinner wins the match point. There's a world where he wins the U.S. Open. And all the Alcaraz hype that has been duly, you know, justified down the past two months of the year, it all goes to Sinner. And then all the little nagging injuries he had this season, all of those starting and stopping quarterfinal losses, you know, all that doubt is erased if he earns that first Grand Slam title. And he didn't. Alcaraz takes the match. And from there, Alcaraz goes on to beat Tiafo in a stunning fashion, plays a really fun match against Rude in the final. 
And maybe you have that Tiafo Alcaraz match on the list of your, the U.S. Open one you want to watch. Maybe you have Tiafo versus Nadal on your list. I don't. I think it's got to be Alcaraz Sinner. I think that was one of the spectacular matches of the year. I also think Iga versus Sabalenka belongs on that list from the U.S. Open. And look, this wasn't the highest quality match in terms of neither player was playing their best at the same time. Maybe for a brief moment in the second set, brief moment at the start of the third. But look, for Iga, who I said it all tournament long, she didn't, she played, you know, she was in a negative ratio, winners to unforced errors in every set she played except for, I believe, starting with that second set against Arena Sabalenka. That's where the tide turned. And that's just where Iga, who, you know, again, beat Pagula 3-6 and six in the quarterfinals, but did not play particularly well. Beat Nehemiah 6-love in the third, but Nehemiah outplayed her in the first and just kind of ran out of gas in that match. At no point did Iga play her best tennis until that second set against Sabalenka, where it's just the competitive spirit, the will. That's what the greats do is when they're not playing their best, they keep things competitive in their moments. And then when they find their form, they capitalize on it. And look, I also think this is one of the most significant matches because clearly Sabalenka possesses the power, possesses the gunslinger mentality that you need to have against someone with the combination of physicality, consistency, and weaponry, efficiency that Iga Svantec possesses. Sabalenka is just the the ultimate disruptor, and obviously we saw that in the Fort Worth semifinal match between the two that Sabalenka won in three sets, but again, Iga sort of turned it on in that second set against Sabalenka, and she sustained that level first set against Owens. Things got a little dicey in set number two, but that moment for Iga getting through that Sabalenka hump when Sabalenka was playing well enough to beat her after that first set, that's one of the matches you remember maybe most significantly from what was a borderline pantheon season from Iga in 2022. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Again, Going to rapid fire through some of these now from a quality drama and just, you know, significance in history moving forward standpoint. I actually think Djokovic-Nadal's Roland Garros quarterfinal matchup belongs on this list. And some of you might be saying to yourself, finally, you mentioned a Djokovic or a Nadal match. Well, look like what Novak match was that significant this year? Like nothing at Wimbledon. He cruised like the Runa match at Paris. Yeah, maybe from a, from a Runa perspective, and spoiler alert, that might be on the list. Yeah, he was really good at the tour finals, but the Djokovic match that stands out to me, because not only did he beat Rafa at Roland Garros last year, but he played so well to beat Rafa in that match, and after taking the second set 6-4, I thought Djokovic was going to do it again in Roland Garros, and you know, look, he served for the fourth set, a match, obviously, Nadal wins 6-2, 4-6, 6-2, 7-6. 
it just feels like the gap has narrowed so significantly between Nadal and Djokovic on that surface. And again, Rafa summoned some extraordinary tennis in set three, extraordinary tennis in set one, and really good tennis down the home stretch of set four to get through that match in straights. He eviscerated Kasparud in the final. Look, watching Djokovic's level to end the season, compared to where Rafa was, you just feel like Djokovic, who's now going to be allowed to play the Australian Open, you feel like he's the favorite to get to 20, you know, he'll get to 22 at some point, whether it's Australia, Wimbledon, where he's the unequivocal favorite given his success and the lack of next-gen success at that event outside of Berrettini. Um, You know, Nadal winning that match was huge, getting through it in four, getting that 22nd major because... Djokovic is now able to play Australia. You know, maybe he'll be able to play the U.S. Open as well next year. And just, again, all of these different things begin to add up as the margins remain so thin between the two. And to see Rafa summon a vintage Rafa performance in that quarterfinal, the quality of play outstanding, the significance of the moment significant. Sorry, great creativity there, Alex. That match has to be on the list. And then just to knock off the Rafa, I suppose, category or the Rafa Djokovic category simultaneously, Rafa getting through Medvedev at the Australian Open. How is that not on the list? It's two sets to love, 2-1, love, you know, 1-2, love 40, Rafa on the precipice of being down two sets and a break. And he somehow finds a way to win the freaking match. Obviously, Rafa ultimately in that Australian Open final, a ridiculous 2-6-6-7-6-4-6-4-7-5 win in five hours, 24 minutes. I mean, that set the tone for what was a ridiculous start to his 2021. Of course, he wins Melbourne, then wins the Aust- Melbourne, the warm-up event, wins the Australian Open, wins Acapulco, beats Alcaraz in that fascinating Indian Wells, where he also got through a really tough match with Kyrgios. Obviously loses that Fritz match where both guys were injured. Didn't win a clay court title until winning Roland Garros here this year, but then, you know, looked to be rocking and rolling and made another semifinal at Wimbledon and, you know, again, did so many significant things throughout the course of the year. And I sort of do think the the tone was set with him, dare I say, stealing that Australian Open final from Daniil Medvedev after, you know, Nadal struggled throughout the course of the tournament, didn't play great against Berrettini in the semifinals, almost got knocked out by Chapo in the corners, a five-set win for Rafa. Similarly at Roland Garros, five sets with Felix, four sets with Djokovic, almost lost his semifinal match to Alex Zverev. Obviously, Zverev gets injured in that match, and then to come back, eviscerate Kasparu the way he did. You know, Again, I just feel like that entire tone was set by his victory over Medvedev because the baton was right there. would have been two in a row for Medvedev. You feel like maybe the dam breaks at that point for the next gen. It does not. Nadal Medvedev has to be on your reviewing list. Of course, because again, it's a gladiator performance for Nadal to come back the way he did. You feel like there was a lingering effect for Medvedev all season long as well. That's got to be on the list as you're looking back at this 2022 season. Of course, I alluded to it. I don't have much to add because we did a podcast on it less than a month ago. But Runa's entire Paris run, I mean, four top 10 wins, I think, on his way to the title, beating Djokovic the way he did in the final. It just, you know, you were questioning, is Alcaraz the unequivocal guy moving forward? And, of course, Sinner 
is sniffing on his tail, but now Holgaruna's right there as well. FAA's run to end this season. He's got to be at least mentioned, and obviously we feel even stronger than that about FAA here in that conversation. But what a win from Holgaruna, and just again, former world junior number one to go from outside the top 100 to inside the top 10, cemented in that Paris run. An unequivocal candidate for breakout player of the year, of course. As you look at the other one, I've got three women's matches, really four. Again, I'm cheating here. Still going to mention Iga. Two moments, I think, stand out to me. One, the match against Young Chin Wen, three sets in the French uh, at the French Open. Obviously, Chin Wen beats Halep in straight sets the round before, and you're starting to think to yourself uh, as she takes a set off of Iga at that French Open, oh my God, is Halep going to lose another straight set match surprisingly to an eventual breakout teenage champion here at Roland Garros? Uh, and then, of course, you know, obviously Iga gets through 6-7, 6 love 6-2, but Jung Chin-Wen goes on to end the season inside the top 30. She's currently 27 in the live rankings, obviously made a third round at the U.S. Open, third round Wimbledon, fourth round Roland Garros, wins, comes through qualifying and wins a match in Australia. She's one of the rising stars at 20 years old on the WTA Tour, and certainly that match against Ego where she sort of becomes a mainstream name for tennis fans everywhere. The other one I would point out, and I think you have to do two from the Ego Roland Garros run because, of course, it comes amidst the 37-match win streak. The other one has to be the golf final because, you know, golf Sviantek could be the defining rivalry of this decade on the WTA Tour, and that match just made abundantly clear there is a structural problem for Coco Goff. And obviously, her forehand has been picked on by pundits since Goff ascended as an, an uber-talented 14-year-old on the WTA Tour. But I don't have issue. You know, again, I think Goff's forehand is fine if it never improves. The problem is with how heavy Iga hits the ball and how much action there is in that ball, how it jumps through, particularly a clay court, just structurally, that ball is so difficult for the Coco Golf forehand to handle. And that Roland Garros final, a final obviously won definitively by Iga Sviantek as she goes on to knock off Golf one in three in what I believe was like an hour, 12-minute final you just feel like that's an issue for Goff moving forward. And if you've seen videos, obviously she was always going to be working on her forehand, but you feel like that ball specifically she will be ready for next year and how she adapts that forehand will define that rivalry moving forward. But I think both of those matches in the Ego run have to be mentioned because obviously she was pushed the most by Chin Wen, who goes on to finish the season top 30. And then, of course, uh, that Goff matchup because it just sort of crystallized how difficult that matchup may be for Goff moving forward. I also think you probably have to mention something from Caroline Garcia. You know, the match I would turn to from the Garcia season, I think the one that flipped things around was actually the Bad Hamburg final against Bianca Andrescu. I just, Garcia had no business winning that match. Andrescu was better than her through the first set and you know, again, there was a moment there where Andrescu just started ripping winners at will to sort of take an early lead in set number three. But Garcia steadied the ship and ultimately a 6-7, 6-4, 6-4 win, a match that had a lot of first strike tennis. Andrescu sort of sprays a little bit towards the end of the match, but there are moments where it's a really high level. And that sort of solidified that match to me was, you know, even more so than the Garcia over Iga in Warsaw or, you know, Garcia over Sabalenka perhaps in a 
really fun Cincinnati semifinal. It was just at the Garcia weapons, her confidence in her serve, her first forehand. I mean, the stats say it. She held her serve over 80% of the time, was the only women's player to do that this season, obviously wins the World Tour Finals. Capable of playing Serena Williams, uh, power, uh, Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club level tennis. And again, the shot making on display in that match between Andrescu and Garcia was simply sensational. So I do think that match has to be on the list. The other one I would throw on that list, and not because the quality of play was particularly outstanding, but the drama of Sakari versus Danielle Collins in Guadalajara round of 16, followed by Sakari versus Kudermatova in the Guadalajara quarterfinals. I mean, what a sequence for Maria Sakari. It saved her season because Sakari had really struggled, right? Lost to Sharif in the Parma final. Loses first round of Parks in Ostrava. Loses first round of Vekic in San Diego. Season was on the line. Qualification in the World Tour Finals was on the line. And she pulls out the three-set win over Collins. She pulls out the three-set win over Kudermatova. The fist pump after she won the second set against Collins where she's double fist, you know, punching out after the set. She really raised her level. Danielle Collins, there were moments where she was just closing her eyes, swinging so brilliantly. I don't want to say that because that's not what she does. She just goes big going for her moments, but it sounds better when you say closing her eyes. But that entire Sakari Guadalajara run, it almost renews your faith in Sakari moving forward. Like, okay, Obviously not tier one, but like given the uncertainty we saw at the top of the WTA rankings, given her run there to end the season, she has to still sit in tier two, right? She had a better year than Conteve, a better year than some of the other peers she had been ascending the rankings with over the past couple of seasons. She just has to be still in the mix after that year-end run, and it was sort of crystallized in Guadalajara. The last match I would just say quickly because he has to be mentioned somewhere is Felix. I'd say his win over Alcaraz at the Davis Cup. You just felt like from there, Laver Cup, obviously all the indoor hardcore success he has. It started with beating Alcaraz right after Alcaraz had ascended to world number one, had won the U.S. Open. And you look in that match, obviously, for Felix to hit, not only for him to beat Alcaraz, but for him to beat Alcaraz in three sets to come from behind and do it in a 6-7, 6-4, 6-2 fashion to have the success on serve that he did. Obviously goes undefeated at Davis Cup to end the season as well. He just, you know, that sort of two-month run, that's what you see from the players who are making the leap, that hardest jump to make to become the guy in the professional tennis world. And I think that Alcaraz moment for Felix sort of was that catapult for him to end the year. But Again, those were the matches to me that mattered most. Those were the matches when I'm sitting here reflecting late November or throughout December, what do I want to look back on to just remember certain things? Now, of course, there are more minute ones. There are quarterfinals, round of 16s, round of 32s at 250s that certainly mattered and took a lot of restraint on my part not to throw some sort of Ben Shelton match on that list as well. But if you're asking me most significant, this would be my list. Of course, at A.L. Gruskin, at Crack Rackets, feel free to let me know what your list is. What are the replays you're watching? What are the matches in your opinion that mattered most? Of course, I threw out some of the slam fight. You know, there are obvious ones where it's just like, oh, what about Indian Wells final? Or, you know, Wimbledon final, Djokovic winning 21, or Alcaraz actually winning that first slam over Root. I don't know why I'm making a mocking tone, but 
yeah, those are the obvious ones. These are, I think, a little bit more on the nitty or gritty side. But, of course, I have a Medvedev Nadal final at the Australian Open and a Goff Sviantec final at Roland Garros. So I did cheat a little bit there as well. Thus, my disgust at my mocking tone. That said, again, at Ale Gruskin. At Cracked Rackets, let me know what your matches that mattered most of the year were. Of course, as I alluded to at the front, this is one of many off-season podcasts we've got coming for all of you listeners as we recap 2022, preview 2023, and so much more. Of course, a shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Shout-out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.